Father Augustine, what a, uh, we just had you on Life in the Rock now, Power and Witness podcast. <laughs> and you're well-educated, highly educated, Ox, <laughs> right? Oxford degree? Yeah, I guess. You, you know, I, I've never actually said it out loud, but <laughs> I think I am. I, I'm not really a scholar. I, I know guys who could spend like their whole lives studying, I don't know, wagon wheel shapes in ancient Greece, but... Mm. That's not my thing. I don't like spending too much time in libraries. But yeah, I've got two degrees from Oxford, a degree from Middlebury, and I got my BA from Rice. Uh, so wow. I guess I'm well-educated. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> what was your degree from Rice? It, it was in ancient Mediterranean civilizations. Okay. In fact, I, I got to tell you, when my first job coming out of college was waiting tables. And uh, I, I interviewed with the Mater D, and she said, "Oh my goodness, a degree in ancient civilizations from Rice? What do you do with that?" <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of looked at her. I was like, "You get the water I'm boy. <laughs> tables, <laughs> bus boy." <laughs> but but I did get a chance. I was really lucky uh, that I got a chance to dig beyond two digs. One in the Roman Forum of all places mm. at the Ve Temple of the Vestals. And, uh, and I also dug in the Agora at Rome. In fact, I dug exactly the first century AD layer where St. Paul had given his famous sermon. So I, I, I still have a can of dirt <laughs> wow. from the first century layer that he may well have walked on. <laughs> I'll, I'll sneak some to you later. What was your degree in, at Middlebury? English. English. I, I, we have plenty of theology teachers at my high school mm -hmm. because we've got plenty of monks, uh, but we didn't have so many teachers of English. And frankly, I, like I said, I, I prefer to write. I, I'm, <laughs> I was complaining to a writer friend the other day because I've become famous as a self-help author. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said, oh, you poor baby, you're a famous author for the wrong reason. <laughs> I, <laughs> let, why don't I cry into your soup for you? <laughs> but what, I, what I'd really love to be known for is as a novelist. Um, and I wrote a book um, called The Eighth Arrow, which I recommend you buy seven copies of <laughs> under different people's names. You can write reviews on Amazon. Uh, starring Odysseus as a, a soul that wants to fight his way out of Dante's hell. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, my, my background is in archaeology, and that, that was my first sort of academic love until I realized that it's not all sort of digging and uh, climbing through ancient ruins and running away from booby traps. <laughs> uh, in fact, most of what an archaeologist does is in the basement of a library somewhere. That's and actually that a was, line from the movies, right? The Indiana Jones, he says something like that. Does yeah. he? Oh, well, yeah. yeah, and he's right, because it was just way too boring for me. Yeah. <laughs> I then, have trouble sitting still. And what were your degrees from Oxford? What were they? Theology. Oh. Though, though really it was, it, it, they should have called it either heresy or uh, religious studies, because it was more sort of the science of religion. I, mm. There was nothing I could really use in a sermon, yeah. but lots of great stuff on the origins of the texts. And, oh. uh, and Oxford was just, it was just a dream. You know, I was telling when he, uh, one of the folks in the office about that I would do my homework in the same place 
where Alexander Pope wrote his translation of the Iliad. And wow. I'd have a, a beer occasionally at the pub where Shakespeare performed his first uh, play. And th that it really does kind of get you thinking in deep and wonderful ways. It's yeah. not real life, but it's yeah. it's great. And of course, that's where I met Walter Hooper, who was yeah. C.S. Lewis's secretary. Yeah. And, and I got a funny story for you, which is that when He's a convert to Catholicism, you know, and he's best friends with Priscilla Tolkien, or was. God bless him, he died two years ago. Um, but when I got ordained, he came to me and he said, what can I buy you as a gift? And I said, nothing, because I don't own anything, but I'll tell you what you can give me. I want something that belonged to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> like, and, and, and tell Priscilla, I don't want anything cruddy either. I want something that belonged to her dad, too. And so... <laughs> If you ever come visit me in St. Louis, I will show you C.S. Lewis's pipe holder and J.R.R. Tolkien's scarf, which were both given to me on my ordination. Oh, wow. As far, insofar as I have anything, uh, those are the two things I really treasure. Wow. <laughs> Couldn't live without and it. the sun all. also rises, right? Ah, yes. Good old <laughs> brother Ed gave me a, a, a signed copy of The Sun Also Rises, wow. though I gave that to the abbot. It's somewhere in our archives. <laughs> wow. And uh, and you studied under Wine Andy, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got a great story about mm -hmm. him too. I he taught me patristics. He's a great man, um, really a wise man. And I remember I was trying to keep all the different guys straight. You know, where is uh, Augustine on the one hand and Pelagius on the other hand and. I, I made this list with all the good guys in green on the right side and all the heretics in red on the left side. And, but, but I couldn't figure out where to put origin because mm. <laughs> is he a heretic mm -hmm. or is he a good guy? Mm -hmm. And uh, I went into his office because he was tutoring me and I said, all right, Father, where do I put origin? And he said, is that what I think it is? I said, yeah. I said, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. And he took over. He said, this is... He said, how long did you spend on this? I was like, oh, I've been working on it for three days. He tore it up and threw it in the trash. Hmm. And he said, look, they are all good guys until they disobey. Until then, they're just progressive thinkers. There's nothing wrong with having a heretical thought <laughs> so long as you submit it in obedience to the church. He's like, right. the, the, Pelagius is only a heretic once he follows his own will against his superiors. Mm -hmm. And I've really I've thought of that a lot, um, particularly because it's easy to tell you know your friends I, as a cleric, as a Roman Catholic priest, you hear some bad sermons sometimes and you disagree with guys and you have these arguments and you think, well that guy's a heretic, but <laughs> that's not our job, you mm -hmm. know? I we, we actually I probably shouldn't tell this story, but we had a monk, we still well we have a monk in our monastery who was very much in favor of women's ordination. And he and I fought like dogs over this. I mean, and he had published some articles and he wanted to write a book. And uh, But then John Paul II came out and said, stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until like a year later that the, the day John Paul II said, stop talking about it, he took it all and threw it away. Wow. Like, yeah. Wow. And, and so it, was, it wasn't until I realized he had done that, that he and I became like, sorry to get over our differences. Because, you know, who cares how stupid your thoughts are if 
you're obedient, you know? Right. As far as I'm concerned, there's no such thing anymore as liberal and conservative. Mm -hmm. There's just obedient and disobedient. And yeah. this was, you know, for as many weaknesses, <laughs> this, is a, this is a faithful monk. He's an obedient monk. When the Pope said, shut up, he zipped it, man. Hmm. That's great. Now, what is, uh, you know, I've, I've been at, uh, you gave a wonderful employee retreat here. And I, I thought about like your liter literary background that it just seemed like, and I've noticed this in other priests that were literary, had a literary background, that they, they have a sense of dramatic speech. You know, they know, um, you know, they know what elements to bring forth, you know, what details to tell. And then part of it is you do too many details, you overwhelm the person. You just get the right amount, and then it makes the story dramatic. You know, it's a <laughs> sense of story, right, of tragedy and things. Yeah. And uh, do you think, do you recognize that? Or is that something, does that come from the literary stuff? Or is that? I think so. I, though I also think it's somewhat cultural. My, my family, I, I, we, I was talking with a guy just recently who's a convert from Judaism. And his family sounded more like my family than most Catholic families mm -hmm. do. That he said, you know, over dinner, we would just argue. Like that mm -hmm. was how we related. You know, someone come up with some stupid idea, mm -hmm. propose it as an absolute truth, mm -hmm. and then we'd all fight. And that was fun, you know. And, right. and you know, my mother is an art historian and an artist. My father mm -hmm. is a historian. He's written books on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. Um, and my sister is in the field of medicine, and it was just a bunch, a couple of really smart people, and we would just fight at dinner, mm -hmm. you know. And so we didn't say the rosary very often. We weren't real pious, but uh -huh. but we did go to mass on Sunday, and we yeah. were constantly fighting over theolo theological <laughs> issues. Yeah. And I guess that's where I get a. I'm not sure how that relates to storytelling exactly, but, but that was always part of it. Like an argument doesn't really carry much weight until you can bring it home as, as something relatable. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the arguments were often peppered with stories calculated to draw out, you know, emotion or mm -hmm. anger yeah. <laughs> or, or, or foolishness or whatever. Yeah. But my father's a great uh, storyteller. I think, though, uh, you know, I wonder if maybe the key to great storytelling isn't just plain old enthusiasm. Mm. <laughs> I, I had a, I, I worked as a professional juggler for a long time. And one of my mentors growing up was a magician who went by the name Timothy Finger, which was just a singularly creepy name. Uh, <laughs> But, but his whole act was him failing at magic. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if he really couldn't pull any of it off, but he was so funny and so charismatic. And it was so much fun to watch him. He would take a rope out and cut it in half and then he'd put it back together again, but it would fall apart. And <laughs> he'd apologize and then he'd bend over and he'd try to get his dog to do a trick, but the yeah. dog wouldn't do anything. And, yeah. and it is... In fact, I may have learned how to apologize first from him because his, his whole routine was just one big mess up with a big apology at the end. And people just loved him. He was a fantastic street performer. 
not a great magician, I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> but pretty good with the crowd and really good with the story too. Yeah, I remember one time listening to a talk. Elaine was giving a talk about Gianna Mola and and it, it was like he was just so excited. I remember he showed us like these real, he had, I don't know if there were slides or something, or project pictures of her. And he was so excited just to have pictures of a saint, you know, can I saint? And I remember, <laughs> I just never forget. It wasn't like he was giving all these great insights into her life or anything like that. He was telling the story of her life. But I just, I'll never forget the excitement that was uh, infectious, you know, and it did bring you into the story. But yeah, I was I was asked many years ago to give um, a talk to a diocese. I won't say which diocese or which priest, but to this particular diocese, to their priests on evangelization. And uh, unbeknownst to me, like just as I was flying in, the news hit that some horrible, something horrible had happened. Some priest had been caught or mm -hmm. somebody major like the bishop mm -hmm. or something, which is why I don't want to say which diocese because mm -hmm. I don't want to get this wrong. Um, but I showed up with all my jokes and stories, mm -hmm. right? Mr. Funny, mm -hmm. trying to get them all riled up. And they were just depressed. You know, the yeah. whole, all 300 of these priests were just sitting there like bumps yeah. on a log. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? And I, but I, but you know, I, did my whole talk yeah. about evangelization mm -hmm. and finally I opened up for questions and one of these poor guys raises his hand and I said, yes, you, sir. And he said, I don't see how you can really preach to us about evangelization. He goes, um, we've had the rug ripped out from under us. Like, I don't have any authority. He said, I just spent the last 30 years of my life trying to earn the people of my, the, the trust of the people mm -hmm. of my diocese and 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 now it's all evaporated just six hours is all it took to to destroy my entire ministry and uh he says so so how do i evangelize now and <laughs> i mean i don't know i said something stupid like pray more or something <laughs> and got down off of the podium and went out and but i was walking down the stairs of the cathedral and this kid, there are these kids out in front skating on the steps. They're doing grinds on the, on the mm -hmm. cathedral steps. And one of them had green hair, I remember. And I don't know if they read the news or whatever, but he screeches up to me and like sprays me with gravel. And he goes like, he goes, hey, what the heck are you? Except he didn't say heck. And mm -hmm. I won't repeat it on mm -hmm. your podcast, the word he used. But I... I I guess I was thinking about my failure or something. I wasn't really paying attention. So I just oh. looked at him and I looked at his hair and I said, uh, I'm a monk. What the heck are you? <laughs> Except I didn't say heck either. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, and then he kind of looked a little taken back. He goes, well, I'm a punk. <laughs> what do monks do? <sighs> and, and, I, and I said, well, monks pray. What do punks do? <laughs> and he goes, well, we pray. And he said, well, pray for me then, punk. He goes, well, pray for me then, monkey speaks up. And I'm like, what just happened? Like, um, but all of a sudden, it like came to me sort of in a flash. And I ran back into the cathedral and I pushed. I remember I pushed the speaker off of the podium. And I said, guys, 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 I got it. Like, you're right. We can't be funnier or cleverer or sexier or louder or cooler than the opposition. They've got us cornered, right? 
But here's what we do have. We have joy, right? Even, even when the hour is darkest, like even when we're miserable, on some level there's this joy that we have that the enemy will never have. And we have that and we have silence and we have the truth. Um, and we cannot be beat on any of those three levels. So no, you're right. We can't, we can't outshout the opposition, but, but we can be quiet. <laughs> mm-hmm. We can listen when, when they won't. We, and, and then we can propose the truth when we're asked. But, but those three things, I think, will conquer the world, you know? Did that resonate with them? You think? Yeah, it yeah. saved my hide. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. all of a sudden they were crying and we you know and they clapped and you know. Wow. But again, that that's you know, when the, when something like that happens, it isn't me. That that's the Holy Spirit. That's yeah. I mean, yeah. it was really that kid with the green hair who had the gall and the, the yeah. guts to challenge me. Right. To to make to draw out of me. Man, I wish I knew who that kid was. But but he he had the courage to draw the Holy Spirit out of me when when I thought I could by the power of my wonderful personality you know encourage all these yeah. these poor priests yeah and by silence you connect that with listening oh yeah and, yeah I mean well silence by itself is just emptiness right I mean mm-hmm. it's nothing but but if you put Jesus at the center of that silence. Well, then, then anything's possible. I, I think I was, well, I started to tell you this afternoon while we were talking about um, this terrible event in St. Louis where Black Lives Matter decided mm-hmm. they wanted to tear down our statue in, of St. Louis. And so I asked the abbot if I could go to the riots. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he said, yes, because, because I thought, and things are really getting out of control and getting a little violent. And I thought, well, a man of peace should be there praying. And what right. area was that again? I know that was like one of the. Well, early... first there was Ferguson. Yeah, Ferguson. Um, and that, and to give you a sense yeah. of how accurate the news is, the the New York Times, the the the, the front page said St. Louis is on fire. So mm-hmm. I got in the car and drove out there, and I thought I'd just be able to follow the glow, yeah. you know, but I spent all night, couldn't find the riots, <laughs> which tells you something right there. Not, not to downplay the seriousness yeah. of the issues they were working right. with. I mean, St. Louis is a deeply segregated community and mm. we've got race problems. And, mm. and, and I'll say this too. I think it's hard to be black in this country. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. Even, even, even if you're, say, Obama, you mm-hmm. know, people point to him and say, mm-hmm. "Oh, but he became president." But I mm-hmm. think, I think, man for man, it is hard to be black. But, but, but this, I've only come to this conclusion after a lot of listening. <laughs> but in any case, that's sort of beside yeah. the point. The thing is that, like, the abbot said, "Yes, you can go out there and pray." But you're, the rule of St. Benedict says that a monk never is allowed to interfere in someone else's fight, right? Mm-hmm. We can't choose sides. We just mm-hmm. have to pray. So I brought along some copies of uh, the, uh, the prayer of St. Francis. You know, mm-hmm. Lord, make me a channel of your peace. And he said, if things get confrontational, you just back up. Just keep backing up. And so I got there and things were definitely confrontational. Mm-hmm. Like a guy came up to me and was like, Hey, Father, I got you covered. He had a pistol. And I was like, whoa, wait, hold on. Like, 
<laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I'm kind of proud of my fellow Catholics for yeah. sticking up for ourselves for yeah. once, you know, but at the same time, that is not what a monk does. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. um, so I just kept backing up and keeping my head down mm. and praying. And um, every time things would get a little rowdy, I would back up some more. And mm -hmm. pretty soon the rosary was over and I lifted up my head and looked around and I was with all the Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, in fact, I had backed up into the Satanists by mistake yeah. because they were dressed in black. And I guess, yeah. I don't know, I felt yeah. comfortable there because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a monk and I'm yeah. dressed in black. And uh, So I, I kind of look around and there's this kid standing a few steps away with dreads and tattoos all over his arms. And I'm like... Uh, so you're not you're not here to pray the rosary, are you? <laughs> and he goes, uh, "No, are you one of those religious people?" And uh, and I looked at him and I said, uh, "Well, a man can't go out dressed in a hoodie anymore without getting judged." <laughs> yeah. And luckily, he thought it was funny. Um, but we we got to talking, and again, like I. I'm not a big fan of Black Lives Matter, personally. In fact, I might even say I was an enemy of Black Lives Matter at the time. But I had made a vow sort of to myself to listen and not to give judgment, right? So mm -hmm. I said, well, tell me about why you're here, you know, because I've heard that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist, socialist, anti-Christian, LGBTQ, you know, promoting, you know, violent <laughs> organization. And and he kind of looked at me like he was shocked. And he goes, well, I'm a Christian. And, and then he goes, and I don't even know what Marxism is. <laughs> like mm -hmm. He says, I just, I heard that there were going to be racists here. So I thought I would come and resist them. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, well, you know, that's fair enough. Mm -hmm. So he says, well, let me ask you something. Are there racists in your group? And, you know, I looked back at him. I thought, well, I said, yeah, probably, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. I guess. I, who knows? Um, but this this guy who was organizing the thing, he, he's a really violent, evil man. Right. And mm -hmm. he says to me, uh, ask him yourself. He's standing on your right. And I looked over. I was like, oh, no. Um, and he says, how you doing? And and I said, well. I've heard you are a violent, evil man. And, mm -hmm. and he says, where'd you hear that? I said, the internet. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, I said, but in all fairness, you know, you were on the news. I heard you. And he goes, oh, yeah. And the news is real fair to Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, I, I felt that the other guy, he had the moral high ground now, uh -huh. you know, so. We got to talking and we exchanged numbers and uh, pretty soon he was like, well, we're going to get this protest underway. Why don't you start us off with the prayer? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, no. You know, the last thing I need is for my abbot to see me mm -hmm. on the news leading a protest, <laughs> uh -huh. uh, which he did. Actually, I was on the news. And I, I said to him, I said, straight up, I said, I don't agree with you. I don't think this statue should come down. Uh, this happened in England, and once they started tearing down statues, the next target were the monks. And I, I think, I think most people in this country are good people. Even even many of the people on the 
diametrically opposite side of the road of the road from mm -hmm. me. Like if you really listen to them, most people, except for the obvious occasional sociopath, they want to be good. And especially and oddly, Americans, I think, want to be good. What wasn't it? Um, Thomas Merton said America is a land full of people who desperately want to do the right thing and have no idea how to about, go about doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that kind of resonates a little bit. I, yeah, I think too, like the, maybe a mistaken understanding of what the good is, right? And right. I think you see that a lot. Well, wasn't it, it was Chesterton who said that uh, you can't blame people for putting a premium on tolerance. Because when you've jettisoned all your other morals, mm -hmm. like that's the only one you have left. So mm. we're kind of throwing our, our all of our weight behind this one virtue because right. like, yeah, because people are basically decent. They just, mm -hmm. they've fallen off track. We have this uncanny capacity for self-deception. Mm. But, it, you know, this happens every 150 years or so and the monks come along and have to rebuild society. So don't yeah. worry, we got this. Yeah. <laughs> and with regards to evangelization, would you say like maybe most of your experience is with young people? Is that who you work with mostly? Or yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, uh, Curtis Martin is a pretty great man. He wrote the one of the blurbs for my book, and mm -hmm. he probably wouldn't remember this, but we had a little argument several years ago about evangelization and he said to me you know jesus didn't just sit up in heaven uh, waiting waiting for us to come to him he got down he got in our business you know mm -hmm. and uh, and i said well that's fine but that is exactly the opposite of the way of monks evangelize like we walk into town bring heaven to earth, build a wall around it to keep everyone out. <laughs> and then it's their curiosity that brings them to us. Uh -huh. It's sort of, well, I guess it's sort of the opposite, but in a great way of what the Franciscans do. I mean, you guys go out there and you get your hands dirty, whereas we create this beautiful little place and let people come to us. Yeah. Well, what, what do you think are some of the keys to maybe themes and methods to reach the young people today? Uh, well, you know, I hate to say it, but liturgy, uh, beauty, you know, I, um, they're so visual, so sensory, um, that I think oddly that it's, it's a lot of the things that we jettisoned back in the sixties because because I think they were, or they may have been doing harm, I don't know, but they, they reminded people of, of oppression or something. Um, and they, maybe they needed to get rid of it, but a lot of that stuff is going to have to come back if we want to evangelize this next generation. Because what they want, I think, no, I know that what they want is something that reminds them that they're part of an organization that's bigger and older than themselves. Like it's things like Latin in the liturgy are really important to them. And I'm, you know, I, I, I say the old mass, for example, and I love it. I think it's beautiful, 
But I'm not convinced that it's necessarily the future of the church, right? Mm -hmm. As a lot of my traditionalist friends are. Um, so I'm not saying that we have to go back to pre-Vatican II. It, that's history. It's, it's done. Um, but we do need to provide these kids with more than just love. <laughs> mm. And I that, that that maybe that sounds cynical, but they need beauty too. They need antiquity. They need nobility. Um, that their world they've grown up in now is so grungy. Uh, it's it's a pornographic. Um, it's a cheap, disposable world. So things like. When they come to a liturgy and they see beautiful vestments and, and ancient words, and it reminds them that there are things in the world that are permanent. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I think, I'll never forget, I was at the conclave of uh, Benedict, and we went there with Life on the Rock, and we were just interviewing a bunch of young people, largely, and. Uh, and I just, I just love their answers. That even happened the second, the next conflict with Francis too. I, I just love getting the take. Like mm. they had like American Catholic schools, universities, colleges would send you know a semester abroad in Rome, and so we tapped into a lot of those guys. So, and just to hear their impressions of first impressions, where everything's new and fresh, you know what strikes them and stuff. But I'll never forget at the one for Benedict. Um, this one guy said, oh, I, th I think it's just fascinating how, you know, at the edge of the square, there's this big scaffolding, aluminum scaffolding of all these uh, TV uh, networks and stuff that are there for the conclave. And, you know, he hadn't had a conclave, what, 27 years or something, right? So this mm -hmm. was like brand new for the world in many ways. And, and there was like this fascination with the tradition and, and what's going on in the, uh, the, uh, the chapel there, you know, and, uh, but this kid said, you see like these parabolic mics and these big fancy cameras, and they're all focused on a little chimney waiting for a smoke signal. <laughs> <laughs> That's and I, great. And I thought it was, it was like so, it's like, you know, like, I, just, I guess it's just fascinating to some degree, you know, and I think even more so today, that's everything's on a screen and all this, mm -hmm. and you have this, this incredible tradition. But, um, what do you think about, too, uh, you said the, the beauty, and um, what about success? Do you think, like, that appeals? I mean, I know, like, you've kind of, you mentioned yeah. to me how you tapped into the self-help market with yeah, bringing the desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, those young people oftentimes, aren't they drawn to, like, a successful church that's growing? And this, well, yes. yeah. Yeah, they are. Um it's interesting though i the way you put it i i thought you were going to go a completely different direction with that quote <laughs> I'm trying to turn off the, on the light here yeah. let me get that for you uh, <laughs> people are going to wonder what was going on that we've been talking so long the room got dark and we had to turn the light on um yes i do think they're looking for a successful church but ironically, that is also the thing that would turn them off is any attempt to try to be successful in the mm -hmm. conventional sense. Um, I, I was surfing out in LA 
at El Porto Beach, and there were these three guys out there, these blonde-haired sort of brainless dudes that yeah. usually are out there. And we, you know, you talk in the lineup in between the sets, and they they said, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And they said, sure we would. And I said, well, I'm a Benedictine monk. And they said, oh, that's so cool. We're Antiochian Christians. And I said, <laughs> what? Like, like, how did that happen? And they told me the story. They said, like, they were out and they had this really, like, epic day, you know, we said, and we realized it was Sunday, so we decided to go thank God for the great waves. Uh -huh. And we just found the biggest, coolest church you could find. And this old priest comes running out after us. He says, what are you doing here? And we said, we want to thank Jesus for the waves. And he said, well, go away. All we have here is Jesus. He said, and the three of us looked at each other. We said, we're in. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, it's, it's that... Uh, and th there's something about this old grumpy priest that, uh -huh. that like, he was so, w more, more so than success, it's authenticity that they're mm. after. Um, and, and this old grumpy priest who just said, look, all I have is Jesus. And that was all they really wanted anyway, you uh -huh. know. Uh -huh. But, but. The interesting thing is they, they went to find the biggest, fanciest, oldest looking church they could find, right? Mm. So it's the beauty that drew them in and then the authenticity that finally converted them. All three of them, two of them, turned, one of them was a deacon, the other one's in the seminary, and the third one was, I don't know, setting to be a subdeacon or something. It was wow. really funny, the two, wow. these three, like, oh, they got dreads, <laughs> blonde hair, just not... Not what I pictured an Antiochian Orthodox cleric is looking like. Right. Um, well, it's yeah. almost, I guess, the true counter, it is, like the true countercultural revolution now is tradition, Christianity, <laughs> traditional values, you know. Right, yeah. right. And I guess, weren't we talking earlier about, about, the Bronze Age sense of honor and and having being able to measure your success and how today you know I in my classical civ class one of the kids brought into class a, a rap song by Kendrick Lamar which I don't recommend to your mm -hmm. listeners that they listen to but um, it's I think it's or it could be Kendrick Lamar I mean, it's called Money and Rep and, and I said well that's 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 it right that's stuff and honor uh, you know what people say about you and what you have and mm -hmm. and the song starts off like i was i grew up in compton and it was all about money and rep because he was a part of the gang culture the warrior mm -hmm. culture right and he says but but i fought my way out you know and now i don't live there anymore and I, I hang out with with movie stars and politicians and he ends the song with and now it's all about money and rep, money and rep. <laughs> it's quite brilliant, really, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think that we've got to be able to offer people an alternative to that commodified honor. Mm -hmm. That we've got to offer them a deeper sense of beauty and honor than what the world has to offer. And of course, we have it, you know, all here. It's all in the scriptures. It's all in the tradition of the church. Um, so, so we have to walk a rather fine line, I guess, between trying to be successful and trying to be faithful. 
and trying to be beautiful without pandering, you know, to the young. Because right. they'll see straight through that, too. Yeah. I heard a beautiful story today about, and for World Youth Day, they have a, a former, he's a former, he was in prison, he's out of prison now, and he's making these confessionals for this, one of the confessional locations for World Youth Day. And um, I didn't read the article, but, you know, it was just like screaming, you know, in prison, you know, liberation and confessional, mm. you know, liberation from sin, you know, this, this mm. deepest bondage. And, and it seemed like, I mean, I think like the self-help thing, that's, you know, I, I was wondering the other, I, I used to, I remember being in college and reading like a lot of self-help stuff. And now I guess you can find like a lot of productivity apps, time management, yeah. you know, life hacks type thing. <laughs> but I went into like a, you know, a, a bookstore the other day and it was like Barnes and Noble, something like that. And, and there, was, there wasn't hardly anything on self-help. It was like, really, yeah, I was like, what happened? You know, and they had like a lot of, I was surprised, a, number, a bunch of stuff on witchcraft and some oh, yeah. weird spirituality yeah. stuff. But I don't know if it was just this particular store or something, but I mean, I think. Well, maybe the people have just given up on that. You know, yeah. you really can't, I mean, spoiler alert, my book is in the self-help section, but it's not self-help. It's right. humility, right? right. I, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing about self-esteem, you know, <laughs> and that I just can't imagine, I don't know, John the Baptist <laughs> saying to himself, you know, you're worth it, buddy, you know, go out there and follow your dreams, you know. Yeah. Um, so in, in a sense, my book is more of an anti-self-help book. <laughs> and maybe that's why it's been so successful. Um, but it seems like maybe that, yeah. is that part of the messaging today or the evangelization to speak into that reality of that, you know, we have a, a culture that's very wounding. We have, mm. you know, a, a divorces. And I've come to, I've heard it for years, but after working more with some people that came from a family of divorce, I've started to appreciate more of the wounds there, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's like, what does the church have to offer for that? You know, I mean, does that, you think does that have to be part of the, the message about how to get over anxiety, depression, addiction, um, hedonism, you know, materialism? Right. Well, self-help books don't often tell you much about that, do they? Um, yeah. I, I guess... Yeah, it's funny. I, I mean, I went through my own crisis a few years ago uh, of confidence in my community, confidence in the church. And I, I was talking to a monk of another community, actually, because I was thinking of leaving. I was, I was, was going to, well, not break my vows, but transfer them somewhere else. And he said to me, you know, if you got to do it, you got to do it, I guess. But haven't your kids, haven't your students dealt with enough instability? You know, like, he's like, they're, you know, their own worlds are so chaotic. Like, do you really want to add to that? Like, there might be a value in you just sticking around. Like, even if you're in the wrong place, like, maybe, maybe you ought to just be there. That and sounds so desert fathery. Yeah, doesn't it? I hadn't thought that's of that, a, but you're right. That yeah. is like, just go back to your cell and <laughs> shut up. And don't you know? leave, right? Yeah, yeah it's true. Um, and I'm getting a little choked up right now thinking about it because I came so close to ruining all that, you know. 
Um, There's something about the joy of fidelity, right? I think John Paul II wrote about that. Yeah, I looked yeah, that up. Yeah. I mean, I just uh, personally, I don't know. I experience it more as the tedium of fidelity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you know what it's like. You yeah. just came off of what a ten-year stint as superior. Uh, six, poor, six, yeah. six years. Golly, <laughs> I just can't imagine <laughs> the poor guy. Uh, but it's um, yeah. I mean, maybe these vows aren't for me. <laughs> Maybe they're for my my students, you know. Maybe yeah. they're for the monastery itself. Well, I, I, you, I go ahead. I think the big thing there is like, if you know, if we, you know, just to get out of our own heads. Yeah. I mean, we just get so much in our heads, and if somebody shakes us and say, "Hey, think about this other person in your life," there's like yeah. this big liberation. There's a sense of peace. It seems like all the complexity and everything and the worry and the kind of the, am I going to be happy with this or that or trying yeah. to assemble our life that'll be the perfect life for us. You know, it's exhausting, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, just just relax and be imperfect. And think just, about somebody else. You know, yeah. I, I, I that's a good point. A friend that's of mine mentioned that the other day that I was commenting to him about feeling some awkwardness and some conversations and everything. I said, I, I kept hitting up against this wall and the, and the guy, he said, he just commented how he, in a time in his life, he was just so self-centered. Mm. And, and, and it hit me as like, well, you know, Mark, maybe in the conversation, if you start paying attention to the other person or maybe saying yeah. something that you really think helps them, and it's like you can have some peace. Or how about yeah. not saying anything at all and just finally listening to them? You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, right, right. I, I was interviewed for some magazine not too long ago, and the the guy who interviewed me said, uh, if you had three minutes to, to say anything you wanted to get a message out to the whole world and everyone would hear it, what would it be? And And I think I kind of shocked him because I said, I didn't even have to think about it. I just said, you know what I'd do for three minutes? I would shut up. <laughs> like, I would give people three minutes of silence. Right? They can just, and I, said, and I think that's going to do way more for the world than anything else I could tell. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, what you were saying reminded me, I just uh, recently said a wedding, and I don't do many weddings because I don't, I don't marry anyone who's living together, so I usually don't hear back from them. But this couple, they were really on board. They were just a wonderful group, couple of kids. And but it, I, I married her to the wrong man by mistake, actually, at one point, but because her 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 fiance was named Aiden, but the best man was named Alban. So I said. Do you, Katie, take Alvin to be your husband? She goes, No. Like, I looked around and everybody laughed. And I was like. And it suddenly occurred to me, I said to her, look, the reason you're taking these vows is because eventually one of you is going to want out. <laughs> like, mm. like, you're going to wake up some morning, look over and say, oh, my God, what have I done? And that's why you took the vows. Right. If we were all just in love all of our lives, mm. you wouldn't need the vows. Right. right. The whole point is to keep you together even when you don't want to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that was sort of, I didn't realize it, but I think I was preaching to myself mm -hmm. at that moment because you know, it's, the, the, it's one thing to be in love, you know, with all the cushy 
marshmallows and candy canes and unicorns. And it's another thing to have to suffer for the person that you love. You know, there's what there's this psalm verse in the Psalms that says, um, my enemies are all around me, so on and so forth. He says, but, but it was you, you, my intimate friend, mm-hmm. <laughs> you betrayed me, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I always thought of that as my body. <laughs> but, but now I wonder if that isn't just like your spouse. Like, mm-hmm. it's everybody's spouse, and mm-hmm. it's my community, and it's, and frankly, it's me to my community. I mean, mm-hmm. I betrayed them, and, mm-hmm. and just by thinking of, of transferring my vows, I mm-hmm. betrayed my own community, you know? And, mm-hmm. But that's that's when the vow kicks in. That's precisely when you gotta right. Right. buck up, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> and, you know, I, I remember that one story you told, um, I really liked that you were early on, I think you were in temporary vows and, and you would go to your, you know that one I'm talking about? I think so, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would go, you'd say you'd had enough, and yeah. you, you would think of the beach and the surfboard and the maybe former girlfriend, I don't know, but it's like, I say, I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm leaving. And what would he tell you? Well, I, well the, the first thing he'd say is, are you leaving today? <laughs> <laughs> and usually I wasn't going to leave that day, so I'd say, well, no, and he'd say, well, be a good monk today. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> and, but uh, but I don't think that was the quote you were, you were finishing. No, oh, that was it. Oh, really? Yeah, because the other thing I said to him was, look, if I if I knew God's will, I'd do it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, yeah, <laughs> of course you'd do God's will if uh-huh. you knew it. The point is to do God's will without knowing it. And <laughs> it's just to stick it out. It's to yeah. sign your, your name on a blank check, uh-huh. turn in the check, and whoever ends up cashing it, that's that, you know? Yeah. Um, that, you, you we, we all kind of wish we had had a St. Paul experience where God says, you know, do this, you're mm-hmm. going the wrong direction, or, or Balaam's ass, you know, mm-hmm. where he, he, the ass finally turns around and says, all right, I'm not going there. Yeah. Turn around, you're not doing the will of God. <laughs> Um, but even those two, you know, had their doubts, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm fond of pointing out that St. Paul was just blind and deaf until he ran into the church. Mm. You know, it it wasn't enough just to have God tell him he had to have the support of his brothers, right? He had to go back and have, what is it? Ananias, is it? I think so. Uh, Cure him. Mm -hmm. Um, until then, he's just bungling along, trying to find his own way, and yeah. it's really it's it's as as a part of a community and a stable community at that uh, that that we find God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like um, it seems like some of the themes you've hit upon here are like. Yeah, just staying in the moment, the present moment, and service, you know, getting out of ourselves, thinking of the others. And, you know, I remember Father Pablo Strav one time, you know, he, would, he did a lot of great programming on the network here, and he, he gave us a wonderful retreat. And I remember he, he said he told a guy, I think he told the guy one time, he said, uh, the guy, you know, he said, why don't you pray 
instead and ask for maybe a, a vocation that someone else didn't want. You know, maybe you don't have, <laughs> you know, maybe you don't have a vocation to the priesthood. You really want to do this. Ask God to, that he could have one of the vocations that somebody else threw away. Huh. And I, I don't know, for some reason, that just hit me so powerfully when he said that, even though it probably didn't work that way. But it's like, uh, you know, I thought. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I, it's hard to know how God works. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking uh, my I was thinking of my Parkinson's, right? And people say, you know, you're handling it so well, but I mean, I <laughs> do I have a choice, really? Mm -hmm. and, and besides that, like, I would much rather that I had Parkinson's than that my niece had it, right? right? And how many mothers in the history of the world have said to them, have said to God, "Give me the pain," right? Mm -hmm. And and. If I, I maybe somehow in the kind of divine algebra, like I was allowed to take this instead of Rachel, you right, know, right. Um, and, right. and and so what would be the use of complaining for ending up with the disease I asked for? You know, mm -hmm. um, it's just so hard to, or just so meaningless to try to. Postpone your suffering, or, or we have an old monk who says, uh, Father Rafe is his name. He, he was just recently sat on by a horse, the poor guy. He's 80 something years old, and this horse sat on him, rolled over him, dragged him around a corral, and then sat on him again. And it, the, yeah, the old guy, he's always been a little bit clueless, but he's even. <laughs> This, uh, he, this didn't help, but, but, but this yet yeah, didn't help. The funny, the funniest part. Well, insofar as there was a funny part, the nurse called us from the emergency room and said he's doing well. He's awake. He's not quite sure, you know, who we are or where he is, and we're having a little trouble understanding him. And we're like, oh no, that's him. He's like, yeah, send him on back. He's normal. Um, but he always says, uh, "You're gonna carry your cross, <laughs> whether you like it or not." <laughs> It's just a matter of whether you accept it. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and if you come to the monastery thinking that's a way to avoid it, mm -hmm. well, you're you're sadly mistaken. Yeah. Um, and and frankly, you know, I I think I've said it to you before, but my students are always asking me because they know I was on the beach patrol. I was a lifeguard, and and that's really pretty much as cool as you can get is being a beach lifeguard, mm -hmm. right? And the kids want to know why I ever quit, you know? And I always promise them that I will answer their questions honestly. I reserve the right not to answer some of them because of scandal or yeah. whatever. But if I answer it, I will answer perfectly honestly. And so they say, well, which is more fun, being a lifeguard or being a monk? And if I'm going to be honest, yeah, it was more fun being a, a lifeguard, okay? <laughs> but in my defense, there's nothing more depressing than a 50-year-old lifeguard, <laughs> right? Because soon, well, like you were saying about the joy of fidelity, of fidelity mm -hmm. that fun is fun, and, and mm -hmm. that's great. But you're a real fool if you sacrifice joy mm -hmm. so you can have some more fun. Right. And, right. and as you know what? I hadn't thought about it until right this second, but I think as a culture... We have collectively sacrificed joy on the altar of fun. Mm -hmm. We've said, 
do it you know, even down to just like eat all you want and never gain weight right i mean right, just right. like you 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 should be able to have fun and not worry about the suffering right, right. which is right. which is okay so long as you're a teenager <laughs> but we all got to grow up sooner or later yeah. <laughs> maybe just close with this what is some wisdom about the desert fathers about overcoming our vices and stuff. What I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, just to share that wisdom. I think a lot of people, you know, because we are at a very addicted age, right? Yeah, it might be Facebook, social media, pornography, or drinking, drugging, whatever activity. These poor kids and pornography. I, you know, I, I I'm not betraying any confessional secrets here when I say that, like. I mean, uh, I've, I've heard so many confessions where the guy just goes on and on and on, and then you have a long pause, and I go, porn. And they go, yeah. I go, well, you are a disgusting human being. Like, you are the only person ever to confess that. You know? And these poor guys, I just don't see how our kids even stand a chance, right? Yeah. I mean, it's... Even if it's not just just regular television has become pornographic, mm -hmm. um, and and the temptation to a teenager, you know, when it, when it's all right there at your fingertips, and and it'll have its effect. You know, sins of the flesh. You know, I, I realize that uh, subjectively, you know, the guilt that, that they bear is probably mm -hmm. pretty minimal. But boy, does it eat away at your heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just this. Well, and here, this brings us kind of back to beauty, doesn't it? The ancient Greeks, the, the reason why they focused so much on their sculpture and art and tragedy was because they said that like that our human beings are so busy creating ugliness <laughs> that we got to mm -hmm. have these beautiful images to help heal the ugly that we've created right mm -hmm. in our minds. Like, so sometimes as a penance, I will tell a guy like, go find an art book and just look at it. Just spend half an hour just looking at beautiful things so that yeah. so that your mind will be full of beauty the next time. You know, yeah. So you can learn to look at the human figure as a thing of beauty, yeah. you know, a gift from God. Um, I saw that once. It was on an Instagram account about like it was a woman had a, an account and trying to champion like traditional modesty and beauty mm. and everything and somewhere in all that she had mentioned you know just putting these images in our mind and it was like from works mm -hmm. of art and stuff and it might be mm -hmm. just you know a mother and her daughter and you know doing the wash or something like that <laughs> and it's like i thought that's true or a I mean, father and a son doing the wash <laughs> <laughs> well, well today yeah <laughs> but yeah the uh but i thought there was a power to that i in fact, I got in my office. Um, I love Vermeer and that girl with the pearl. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Vermeer. Yeah, there, and, you can't. You can't be. There's. I don't think there's ever been a painter who is who could bring out beauty the way he did. Yeah. The, just I, the, I. I don't think anybody's ever done it since. That that things just seem to glow on the on the on the canvas. If you've ever seen one in person, it's... Well, I got to see that girl with the pearl. Did you it, really? It came to the United States. And, yeah. uh, and I, I remember I was in, we were at the Walk for Life in San Francisco, and uh, this public bus goes roaring by, and they had 
the painting on the side of the bus. And I told <laughs> him, I wasn't driving, but I said, catch up with that bus, you'll see. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it turns out it was going to be, it was in San Francisco. And I said, well, tomorrow, Monday, we're going to go see it. And, but it, the, the museum was closed that Monday. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> but it, it actually... Like had Mondays, of course. Yeah. I, it wound up traveling to Atlanta, which is only a few hours from us. So my mom and I <laughs> drove there. And I remember, I just remember walking into that room and they had the lights, you know, the walls and everything were dark around it. But it just like popped. I mean, it was just yeah. like, it yeah. was like living. Well, they, you know, there's a great documentary out now called, I think, Tim's Vermeer or something. Yeah. Have you seen it? No, I've got it. I need to watch it. It's, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not going to do everything I hoped yeah. it had done, but the the you the way and it kind of seeks to explain like how he became so how he created this thing yeah. so beautifully. Yeah. Um. But, but 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 I, but I it doesn't it, it's all it's focused on the technique rather than the sort of yeah. soul of the artwork and which is interesting too I think because it's not. I mean, because he used very concentrated focus studied scientific technique so to speak right yeah and we always think of like art is just inspiration from the heart and everything no <laughs> no no it's hard work i've never i that, that's i think um what van gogh did the art world a, a terrible disservice <laughs> because everybody thinks you gotta cut your ear off to be a great artist but I've grown up around artists and, and really good ones and they and to a man or woman uh, they have been the most disciplined, hardworking, down-to-earth people. Like the, the idea of the sort of crazy, wild-eyed artist, like yeah, searching for yeah. inspiration. It's yeah. it's about just putting in the hours. Like yeah. anybody who, who plays an instrument or 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 paints or writes will just yeah. say that you know you got you just gotta or juggles or does magic or whatever. It's about in in. Um, on the street, the jugglers used to talk about um, what they called the real work, the real work, mm -hmm. which is just like when you're on stage, you know, you try to make it all seem fluid and beautiful. But the real work is like getting in there and picking up the bowling pins and dropping mm -hmm. them and throwing them and dropping and throwing and dropping and throwing and dropping. Mm -hmm. yeah. and like, how do you do the real work? Right. 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 Um, in the magic world, I think it has a slightly different meaning me like that exactly what sleight of hand you use and how well you practice it uh -huh. and things like that. Um, what about like with preaching? Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I struggle with that, you know, and, and you know, like there's like putting in the work and maybe writes, rewrites, practices and all yeah. that. Or sometimes yeah. I... You know, we have like a noon mass here and we just jump up and you say a few <laughs> things and... Well, uh, I mean, I think, okay, when you jump up and just say a few things, there you can't tell me you hadn't... Those are just things that just suddenly jumped right, into your right, mind. Right. Those are things that you've been thinking right, about for right, weeks and right, months, right? right yeah, yeah, so... Well, that's what I kind of came to the conclusion. It's like, I see one of the guests on Life in the Rock said this. She's actually an actress and she said... Uh, you know, my father used to always tell me, go to war with what you got, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I thought, 
you know, this is kind of like, and I'm thinking Go like. Go to war with what you got. Okay, yeah. Yeah, right. you don't wait for the perfect army or you wait for the perfect situation. Oh, right, yeah, right. you just got to. And like, so I said, what has the Lord really given me here? You know, maybe I had these encounters with some people. Uh, maybe I read something that struck me and just, well, use martial all that. You know, that's what the Lord's giving you. Maybe that's what he wants you to use. And, uh, and so there, there's that way. And and then there's a, I, I don't know, like this, the technique or the uh, the labor of it, of, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Because yeah. it's a lot like uh, preaching is a lot like stand up comedy. You know? <laughs> I, I, I had a brief foray in college and a little while after on that sort of comedy mm-hmm. stand up circuit. Yeah. And those guys, like, it seems like they're a bunch of screw ups, but yeah. in fact, they work really hard yeah. and and what they do is really scary stuff i mean mm. there is nothing worse than losing it all i can tell you from experience like that when you tell a joke and it bombs it yeah. is the most horrible experience yeah. and every guy up there is every comedian i've ever known was desperately insecure like that's right, right. I, one of them i remember one of them got heckled and the person said to him um you just want my approval. And he goes, yes, like, <laughs> yes, I do, I do, I do, I do. Now get out. <laughs> because, yeah, it's, I, or, or uh, you'd be just amazed at how hard these guys work. Even the, the like, top professor, guys like, guy like Chris Rock, yeah. he spends, like, the rest of the week he spends in little dive bars trying out material on audiences that hate him like and 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 the one or two jokes that come out of that vast so it all feels i mean what was it Uh, they tell a story about picasso that he was in a cafe and this woman recognized him and said oh mr picasso i'm such a fan i i would love to buy one of your works and he said okay and he drew something on a napkin hand Mm -hmm. and he said that'll be five thousand (laughs) dollars and she said to him but you just drew it right now. I yeah. watch you. Yeah. He says, yes, that's five cents for the napkin and $5,000 <laughs> for the 20 years it took me to come up with this. And there was a, oh, I read a book years ago that I have since lost or given away. And I can't even remember the author, but it's a collection of the worst poetry of the very best poets mm. <laughs> and, and and how like he says that like most of these guys just wrote terrible poems mm. like for every one beautiful work there yeah. was just tons yeah. of trash yeah. right yeah um, in fact even Vermeer I believe toward the end of his life one of the reasons why he's everything he's done is great is because he went around and destroyed all the mediocre works oh. like later like, yeah. toward the end of his life I think it's Vermeer, it's one of those guys, went around and bought back all of his mediocre artwork so he could destroy it. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, read, I heard this interview with a guy, I didn't read the book, but he wrote about the I Have a Dream speech of Martin oh, Luther King. Oh, yeah. And I, this is why I might have this wrong. This is the way I remember him telling the story that he's there at Lincoln Memorial. You know, he's given the speech. He's actually like furiously adding notes as he's sitting oh, down sure. waiting to go up, you know, sure. he's adding stuff to it. 
and he gets up there and the gospel singer, the lady who was a friend of his, she said, tell us about your dream, Dr. Yeah, yeah. tell us about the dream. And and I, oh. because he had given that before. Yeah. Right. That was yeah. material he had practiced, whatever. Oh, given yeah. And, everything. and so that comes part, comes roaring into Bam. it. And that's what we remember. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like, I, it just kind of hit me because it's like, yeah, it's like you want to think of stuff as like this fresh inspiration on the spot, you know, but it's. Uh, well, it makes us feel better for being lazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> you say, well, that guy has talent, right? So and I, know, I don't have talent, so I, I can be excused for giving a cruddy sermon. <laughs> well, I, I listened to his, um, he has this um, this speech he gives on, or it's a sermon on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh -huh. and where they're going to throw him into the fiery furnace, you know, and he, he just has a great, you know, his oratory skill is, I think, just unmatched, but he, you know, he said the Israelites were held in bondage, you know, in, in, in uh, Babylon or whatever. And uh, and the, the king wanted, was going to force them, these Jewish prophets, you know, to bow down before their God. And, and unless they acknowledge that, you know, their God's not a true God. And he said, you know, if, if the God of Israel is true, he'll save you. And they mm -hmm. said... Yes, it's true that our God of Israel is the only God and he can save us. You know, but, but even if he doesn't. <laughs> but if not. <laughs> still, yeah, that's good. But if not, <laughs> we're not going to bow down before the, this golden idol. And, the, and the, But the way he says it and everything. And, but then he goes on to talk about the quality of faith that we need to have. You know, the sincerity and the heart and everything. And it was just like, I was just like mesmerized, you know, by what he was saying. And because, mm. you know, the, the thing that drew my attention to it was Dunkirk was right there. The allies are held up they're They're masked, masked on the beach, right? They're cornered mm -hmm. and they're going to be strafed and everything by the enemy fighter planes. And so they're trying to get them over to England. And so they, you know, they organized the big, layman navy to come rescue them but yeah but before i think before that really happened the naval commander is calling back to england and he just tells them you know he's given the status report and he said you know we hope the relief comes in time but if not you know we're not going to surrender you know we're yeah. going to keep fighting yeah and uh, i thought you know they totally missed that in the movie but this one of the it was some other preacher that said that that phrase meant something to a, a biblical culture, right? If you sure. said that in America, nobody knows what that means. Yeah. But that was like the key thing that he sent back. But oh, if but not, even if not, we're not going to surrender. Oh, you know? he yeah. was making an allusion. Yeah, to yeah. The oh, book that's of Daniel. wonderful. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like wow, you know. But um, yeah. Let me ask you one other question. Okay, yeah. Well, I've got you, a master of antiquities. I I was on a footprint of St. Paul, and we were in Athens, you know, and, and seeing the sites like where Paul was and everything. And I I remember, you know, we went up to the Parthenon, and <laughs> then uh, we went down to the they have a beautiful, super ultra-modern museum at the foot of the Acropolis. And, right. 
Yeah, and I remember watching this film there, and they said, you know, they talked about all the the technique that was used in, you know, like perspective and antithesis of the pillars and, yeah, 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 like there was so perfect. Yeah, it's like these lines that you thought were straight were actually bowed or curved or yeah, and all this stuff. And um, and I just remember they said one line in there said it's not it's a it's a living, I don't know they said living building, but it's a living thing. Mm And I remember it just so struck me because I said, yeah, it does pop. Even though the thing is practically yeah. bombed to smithereens, yeah. there is something in that that still lasts. Pure, still pure yeah. somehow. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I was thinking, this was like 500 B.C. All yeah. this, you know, at the top of the, you know, they have all this artwork. And it's like the Renaissance was a rebirth of this. 2,000 years later, like this realistic sculpture. What made Athens special that they had this 2,000 oh. years before Michelangelo? Well, you, okay, you know, I don't think they were special. Um, and, I, and I don't think the Renaissance was a rebirth either. I, I'm with G.K. Chesterton <laughs> on this, that, that I think... Um, I think what happened during the so-called dark ages was that they had to abandon that for a time, mm-hmm. like like fasting. You know, food is good, and, and when you have a good meal after a long fast, it tastes wonderful. But the ancient Greeks had this sense of beauty, mm-hmm. and but they also had this wildly corrupt culture. I mean, this whole business about of a pedophilia was just this standard like almost encourages a virtue in ancient Athens and in in among the Spartans it was really weird and twisted too and and, and then when G and then the Romans took that and, and just turned it into all kinds of weird stuff mm-hmm. um, so that when the Christians came along they said look we have to put aside that beauty for a while mm-hmm. I think I mean I don't this is my own yeah. no it's not my theory it's it's history um, but they, they rejected, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't keep a statue of Venus and not look at it with lust. All so right. um, now I think they went a little overboard, and, but thanks to the monks, we saved some of that stuff for later. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't so much a rediscovery as it was a taking up where we left off mm-hmm. after a long fast, mm-hmm. if I may. Um, but the ancient, I mean, the ancient Greeks understood on some level that they had got it wrong right I mean, Oedipus mm-hmm. is is surprisingly Christian I mean, here's this guy who's guilty but he's innocent and he's got to suffer for the st- sake of the people but he didn't do anything but 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 he and then in every one of these Greek tragedies, it's someone innocent who's also kind of guilty at the same time and takes on the sins of the people. In the Bacchae, it's very interesting that Dionysus, who's murdered and comes back from the dead, visits Theseus, and Theseus says, I'm going to throw you in jail and I'm going to have you tortured to death. And Dionysus, who is the wine god, says to him, You'd have no power if my heavenly Father hadn't given it to you. You know, mm. you go, oh my God! Mm. Like they almost figured it out. <laughs> like they almost had it. Like, yeah. um, 
but you can only get so far with reason, you know? I mean, I think it all goes back to Homer, really, and his, that moment with Achilles, to bring us back full circle uh-huh. here, um, where, where he says, my honor lies in the mind of Zeus. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody gets it at first, mm-hmm. but, but they begin to realize that the world is fundamentally good and fundamentally from one great source. And therefore, it has to make sense. Um, I, I was talking about this with my students the other day, that like there, there are virtually no great Hindu historians. Why? Mm. Because for Hinduism, history is a cycle that repeats itself. Why mm. bother? It's right, all gravity right, again. Right. Right? Oh, and, and, and really, it's in the West that we have all the great scientific discoveries yeah. because we can't just say, inshallah, like God wills it. You know, mm. it three million people die. It's because God just didn't care mm. about them or didn't yeah. or whatever. Because to the ancient Greeks first, but then the Christians inherit this tradition. God is good. God is truth. Mm-hmm. And therefore... If three million people die in a mudslide, we've got to understand why that happened. Not just say like, well, God didn't like them Mm -hmm. or or they didn't offer the sacrifice right or whatever. Um, Or or God created, God can do whatever he wants with it. Mm -hmm. That's not our God. Our Mm -hmm. God is good. And and I think really, I can go on a limb here and say that I think only Christianity Uh has a really satisfying answer to that problem of suffering that... That God suffers with us. That God is good. He didn't intend for any of this suffering, any of this evil, any of this sadness to happen. And it grieves him in the person of Christ on the cross, just as it grieves us. I I don't see how I could make any sense of any of it otherwise than to say, you know, I'm really, really sad, but Jesus is sad with me. Uh God is sad with me right um and that you know and, and to bring it back to beauty that's that this uh he died two years or a year ago i think roger scruton was a great philosopher of beauty mm-hmm. and he said that the purpose of art is to bring us a, to accompany us in joy and to console us in grief mm-hmm. <laughs> To, to be with us in our grief. So you can have a painting of the beheading of John the Baptist mm-hmm. that is beautiful, mm-hmm. even though what it's describing is something horrific, mm-hmm. right? Um, that, that somehow you can see through the world and into the heavens. Mm. Um, and the Greeks, I mean, they had this great flowering of arc, architecture and stuff sure. because of their religious nature. Were they more religious than other surrounding cultures or no i don't think so but i i, I mean really they, think they seem special out. doesn't yeah, yeah well but see the thing is they i think what the greeks understood that nobody no other pagan culture understood was that they were wrong <laughs> <laughs> i mean here's if you look at the iliad right mm-hmm. here are all these gods that are just absurd. I mean, right. you know, Zeus 
I, my students just love this, the, the scene where he tries to seduce his own wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's this bungling idiot. And he, there's this passage where he says, Oh, oh, Hira, you know, you're so beautiful. You're more beautiful than that shepherd girl I seduced last week. <laughs> you're more beautiful than the queen of such and such that I seduced mm-hmm. last year. You're so beautiful. And he, gives, he makes the most unromantic overture like ever but he can because he's a god right Right. and i think homer is encouraging us to say or encouraging his people to say wait this isn't god right Mm. like this there's something wrong here Mm -hmm. um whereas you compare that to like this interesting relationship between odysseus and athena that or, or between achilles and um his mother, who is Achilles' mother, I can't remember offhand, but we're like that, that's intimate that says, like, I really care about you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have that contrasted with like Ares, who comes down and kills a hundred thousand men and then goes up in heaven and they all have a good laugh, mm-hmm. right? Or, or, or they all make fun of the crippled, the cripple and have a good laugh, mm-hmm. you know? And you say, well, wait, that can't be God, mm-hmm. right? And, and so, as St. Paul points out in his speech to the Areopagus, they have this temple to the God we don't yet understand. And, and maybe that's what gives them their unique power, that they, they realize that there was something missing. Mm. Um, that, that in contrast to, like I think, every other Gentile culture, they knew there was something wrong. Mm. Oh, and, th- and isn't that what every tragedy is about? There's something wrong here, right, right. and it's coming to get us, and we don't know what it is. But somehow in ourselves, we have what it takes to confront it, right? Mm. But we don't have what it takes. So it's going to take a God somehow to to be one of us to confront. You know, yeah. the, the, the God that came, gosh, gosh. They came so close to figuring it out. Mm. Uh, it's it's really wonderful. Well, they yeah, wasn't it? Plato said it's better to suffer evil than to commit it. Right. I mean, that's an incredible. Yeah. <laughs> or Socrates, <laughs> yeah. who says, um, like, I have I know nothing but the fact of my own ignorance. Yeah. And and for that they poison him to death. Oedipus, who who realizes that he has sinned. Mm against God and against man ends up poking his eyes out like mm-hmm. no no that admit mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like you came so close like I'm guilty God but I don't know how to make up for it so I'll just poke my eyes out which mm-hmm. that that hardly insignificant <laughs> you know like yeah. tra- tragically insignificant right, right, right. <laughs> Well, but, thank you, Father Augustine. Oh, uh, yeah. So oh, what much. a pleasure. <laughs> I, uh, the time just flew. It got, we, we started off at what it, when the, the sun was high in the sky. Now it's <laughs> dark as anything outside. So thank you. It's been a great pleasure. It's always fun to come out here to EWTN. Yeah. I love you guys. Thank you. Thanks so <laughs> much for coming.